You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. Well, this is a special occasion today because I have been waiting to speak to this particular architect for an extremely long time and I'm totally overwhelmed because I'm in the most beautiful building. I'm here at Smart Design Studio with William Smart. Welcome to the podcast, William. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's great to be here. William, we normally start with just asking guests a little bit about their childhood and where they grew up. Mm. I'm wondering whether you can tell us about yours. Yeah, so I was... Born in New Zealand and then moved to Western Australia when I was two years old. And so I grew up in the country in WA. And from a young age, I wanted to be an architect. Someone saw me making amazing sandcastles and said, you should be an architect. And I liked the sound of that. And that became what I wanted to do for most of my childhood. I think there was a period where I I thought I might prefer to be a car designer because I became quite obsessed with car design. And so I'd always be drawing, drawing cars and buildings all the time. But I ended up enrolling in architecture in Perth and really loved studying that at Curtin University. When you knew you wanted to be an architect, how was that like defined for you at such a young age? Did you think it was just sort of building sandcastles or...? Yeah, no, I think I think I knew it would be building houses. Yeah. But I remember my dad sort of reminds me of this, that one time we went driving through the town and I sort of asked him how much would it cost to buy the whole town? Oh, wow. And he said, why would you want to do that? And I said, well, then I could fix everything up. And what, what I was talking about was putting a tree in every spot where one was missing when you get a row of trees down the road and there's a few out of place. I was thinking about changing the colours to all the houses so they were more harmonious and then taking out a few of the buildings I didn't like. So that's what I thought an architect would do. They would fix things up and mm-hmm. they would kind of integrate landscape and make everything harmonise on the city level. So that, I knew it would be to design houses, mm-hmm. but I knew it was also more than that. Right, mm. yeah. And from a young, they would have been seven or eight years old. Wow. I thought that's what I want to do. That's amazing. Because I, I think when I grew up, I think that, you only knew of people that were architects. And did your family support this? Yeah, they, uh, they certainly supported it. Yes. They certainly supported it. I know there was a period where one day I also went home and said to Dad, I've decided I want to be a salesman. And he said, oh, salesman, what sort of things would you sell? And I said, cars, any cars, are quite like, like secondhand cars because, you know, I think that would be good. Yeah. And Dad started saying, well, we could be more strategic about where your skills lie and, you know, you're good at drawing, maybe you need to kind of bring that into the fold a little bit as well. So there was times when I'd sort of waver a little bit, but I, I generally thought that being an architect was right for me. And then growing up sort of with that country setting and then going to study at, mm. in the city, did, what sort of transition was that for you? Yeah, it, was, it was incredibly awkward, actually. <laughs> so I, I grew up out of town and I just I didn't know of any architects. We had, you know, when I went to school, I did more of the physics, chemistry, maths, economic sort of type subjects. So I was quite disconnected with the art world. And and then I remember arriving at university feeling totally like a fish out of water. I just, I probably looked a bit like George Michael from Wham at the time, you know, sort of big hair, pastel coloured clothes, you know, (laughs) very kind of like surfy kind of vibe. And I went to the architecture school and I noticed everybody wore black and they all had 
you know, oversized T-shirts with the cute or the Smiths and flopsy hair and no tans. And I just I remember the first year I just felt like everything I did was wrong and they would talk about their favourite Picasso piece and I just wouldn't know the answer and they would talk about their favourite architects so I wouldn't know the answer. So I, I, I really struggled in the first semester of the first year at university mm-hmm. and then second semester one of the lecturers said to me, you've got to come to my office at lunchtime and we'll go through some stuff. And I, I actually thought he was going to tell me to leave and go and do another subject. And at that point he said, I want you to read this book and it was a book on Cedric Price and I sort of took it away and I devoured it within days I thought it was absolutely fascinating and that was kind of maybe that point where someone just looks at you and thinks I could help you find your feet here and gave me a lot of guidance and I'm eternally grateful for that. So because I mean I guess what I'm sort of hearing is that when you got to university you didn't have any real architecture heroes or you hadn't really had any impressions on on different works no, at this not stage. At all, not at yeah. all. So if you if you went back to my first project at university it looked exactly like a project home. You know it was just pitched roof, bay windows, you know just like a project home that had no flair at all and uh, I had I just had no idea about you know, the great architecture of the world. I remember seeing Le Corbusier's work in first year thinking, oh, that's really ugly to me. It's all concrete and heavy. And, you know, a few years later, I was just besotted by Le Corbusier and all of the contemporaries of his as well. But I I didn't have that sort of environment at Mm. home where that was a part of the discourse or there was interest in that world. It was, Mm. you know, being on, growing up on a farm, you're much more directed towards doing things that are practical and functional Mm. and produce output more than reading books and studying things and drawing. And so from what I'm understanding is that you've got to uni and you're feeling a little bit like a fish out of water, but Mm. did the study, was it what you thought it would be? Did it deliver what you hoped to learn? I think it was entirely different. So I just felt the first year I... I didn't know why. I didn't know what they wanted from us. I just mm-hmm. wish they'd give me an example and say, "Make your version of this." But it was always these open questions and kind of crazy briefs, and it didn't feel very real. But somehow, through second semester, I found my feet. I just thought, "That's actually really good. I could do these exciting, interesting things with it." And I just sort of found my feet, and I became really engrossed in studying architecture. You yeah. know, I was that person who would get up early because I loved doing it. I'd be at university at the very early, like five in the morning before the others came in when the computer power was very strong. This is sort of back in the early days of computing and I was interested in that and the potential that could bring to design. Mm. And I also was just kind of absorbed with it. So I'd go to the library at lunchtime with books. I would draw all the time. I, I just, I loved it. So I found my feet within, you know, in the middle of second semester, first year. Now, I'm going to ask this because it's a very sort of Perth thing, but we, we've heard from several architects that went through the Perth universities and there appear to be some extremely erratic university lectures that have come up with some radical projects. Yeah. Did you experience any of those? Yeah, totally. Okay. Totally. Can you share one? <laughs> there was some, um, I think there was kind of one project I particularly loved was, and this was an example of the vagary of the brief. The project was to design your touchstone and it was engineered by a lecturer by the name of Bill Busfield. This is who we hear about. We yes. hear about a lot. <laughs> and he was just so hard to pin down. And we just think, I don't know what a touchstone is. What is what is a touchstone and how do you design that and what does it actually mean? And 
And then again, I would sort of just think about the things that I loved and, and how to work with that. And I ended up designing a, a kind of an art piece that was integrated with an installation. So it was kind of performance art piece with, with physical things. And it was really good. I, I really liked it. And Bill let me know, I think he sent me a photograph about a year ago. He kept it. He kept the art piece and it's in his shed and he was clearing out the shed and he found it. Photos of it back to me again. So I have to, at some point, try and get my hands on that. But it was just so vague and so out of this world. And you, we often were asking ourselves, what has this got to do with building? Yeah. But it's all about the process. It's about thinking. It's about generating. It's mm. about embedding the concept. And then from that, you you build the layers into a project and we still do that today. Yes, yeah. So you finish university mm. and then then what happens? What do mm. you decide to do then? So I, I graduated at the end of 1990, so there was no work to be had. Mm. <laughs> so it was the, that was the recession. The and recession. I Yeah, the recession we had to have. Yes, so, yes. So I waited about a year and then went travelling after that. So spent a year sort of sorting a few things out. I designed a house for my parents in that time which was built, and then went travelling and, and ended up working in the south of France mm-hmm. and stayed there for a year and a half, working in a kind of a great architect's office, all completely by accident. But it was sort of what I wanted to do. I wanted to work in France. I thought that would be kind of exciting, and I really wanted to feel like the world was big and to eat different food, to speak a different language, to use a different currency and just feel like, you know, kind of explore adventure and just see where life takes you a bit. And did you speak French were you, before you no, did it? Okay. No, I had studied it a little bit, <laughs> but not. I couldn't speak it at all. Like wow. just terrible. Like even ordering a train ticket was near impossible to do. But you decided to go and work in an architecture. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it was one of those things by accident. I sort of, we had some family friends that wanted to restore a house in France, and we just went off and did the painting. And then one day I looked up in the in the little village of thirteen hundred people, so a tiny village in South France. And saw this word atelier. I thought that means studio. I know enough about that. So I knocked on the door and said, I'd like to work here. Would you give me a job? And they were landscape architects, but they directed me to the local architect. And he undenied for a week. And after that, he ended up saying, Yes, you can start now. And that meant now. Yeah. And anyway, we worked on a competition. We lost that one. They said, If you win the next one, you can stay. So I had a really good idea for the next competition. They ran and we won it. And then I got to stay. And what projects were you working on? Like what, what were you? So it was in, yeah. a, in a small village. And so yeah. part of the role of having me there was it was at a time when Europe was opening its doors. Mm-hmm. So the English were buying barns and old castles yes. in the south of France and restoring them. Yep. And you could buy them for a song because, you know, everybody wanted to live in the cities. And their, their half asset and half liability is all projects. Yes. And so part of my role was to just help manage that process and okay. meet with English people, make sure the translation got through. Okay. And that was a sort of minor part of the job, but I was really designing and documenting renovations to houses and castles and barns. And what was great about that was it just taught me everything about proportion, mm. construction. I mean, we were sort of designing roofs for snow, which we don't do here, but just thinking about all those other aspects was really important. And it's completely embedded in tradition. So you learn the old ways of doing things, so mm-hmm. how you would do a timber lintel in a stone building and not have the damp come through. It was kind of all of that, but also just that kind of exquisite uh, attention to detail when it came to proportioning, mm-hmm. which we didn't, we didn't do any of that in university. It was no. like 
not not at all what we're interested in. Do you think that's impacted how you operate today? Totally, yeah. totally. Yeah, I'm kind of like I'm working on this house with Justin Hems at the moment and he would like it to be more traditional than we ordinarily do. Yeah. And I'm sort of going back to my days of thinking, you know, how do we proportion windows? How do we make that work for the room? Mm. And then it's all second nature, so I know it all now, but I'm bringing mm. all of that into the fold. Yeah. And I also think that proportioning can be on an elevation with the walls, the windows, but it's also the shape of a room. How is it proportioned? How do you walk into the room? I, I think about that all the time. Yes. And so how did that sort of come to an end? So I lived I lived in the south of France for two summers and one winter wow. and sort of at the end of the second summer and it was in a small village and I kind mm. of loved all the life but I just thought I'm ready for a big city now. Because <laughs> you were by yourself. That, yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And I loved all that. It was sort of a period of time where I was just, I needed to think about my life and what I wanted to do and what I enjoyed doing. So I, I did a lot of thinking about those. And also I think areas. sometimes when you do have that time by yourself, you end up interacting more with other people because totally. you've got no choice. Totally. You know? yeah. yeah. So I was a member of the athletics club. We went away every second weekend on an oh. event, so it would be the whole weekend out. So you'd meet other people and you'd find a life interacting with them. But it was a really great time to uh, step off the treadmill, if you like, from you know school and mm. doing HSC to university and trying to get through and do some good projects mm. and then try to save up some money for travelling. I felt like life had been um, fairly laid out for me mm -hmm. and it wasn't random and it wasn't um, kind of, there was no point along the way where you just stop and think, I wonder what I really want to do, mm. you know, not, not what, I what, what I should do, but what do I want to do? So that mm. kind of thinking. And so I went through one summer, which was amazing, winter, which was cold and dark and snowy, and and I thought that was good. <laughs> I enjoyed all that for the first time. Mm. And it got to the end of the second summer and I just thought I'd really, I'd really like to be in a big city and going to parties and doing something else. And I got an interview with Foster and Partners mm -hmm. in London and got the job there and went off and worked there for three and a half years. And that was, you know, the, being able to speak French by that time really helped because they were doing work in France and, uh, you know, having had a bit of experience mm. also could help as well. So I wasn't fresh out of university but I'd been working for, by that time, a couple of years and that all kind of, you know, made it possible. And, you know, working in London and obviously having so much more exposure, was that an easy transition for you? From? From being in France and, and sort of now obviously working on larger projects. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, like I kind of loved the work of Foster and Partners, so mm. I was totally engaged with their level of detail. And rather than designing big projects in an office like that where you're working on a big project, you get to look after small details yeah. that are rolled out over a very vast scale. So my first six months was just doing detailing of acoustic panelling on a train station, and that was six months' worth of work. And <laughs> it's just... And I, I loved all that because you would sort of think through how it was to be done and then you would go to the next item and then unfold it and mm. integrate signage and so forth. It was a place that surprised me. Mm. I went there because I thought there's no better place in the world to learn how to detail. Mm -hmm. But what surprised me about the place was their clarity of thinking, the big ideas that direct the projects. And we were at a time when I started there, there were 70 people in the studio, so it was quite small compared to what it is now. Yeah. And so it just meant we were all in one room and you've sort of got to know everybody in the studio to some level and 
learned from everything that was going on. You sort of knew all the projects, you knew the ethos behind them, you knew what was going wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also what was going right. It was a great place. And what would be your favourite memory of the projects that you worked on there? Of London? Yes. Yeah, that's a great, great question. I mean, I kind of, one thing I just sort of always take away from it was the, the level of talent there. I was blown away by how talented people were. Right. It kind of really surprised me. On the projects we worked on, it was at that time they were starting the British Museum project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was just kind of extraordinary to see that unfold. And they had won the competition to do the Reichstag in Germany as well. And so something I remember was they had a room called the Pavilion and they'd laid out all of the options for the roof. And I think there were 70 scale models on the floor that would fill a whole room. It was just so rigorous. You know, it was almost crazy, really. Like, you, do you really need to do 70 options for a project? But for whatever reason, that's what's happening. I guess you can say with certainty what the choice is that you that's considered right, yeah. all options. Everyone knew right? what they were getting themselves yeah. in for. <laughs> yeah. 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 How did that sort of come to an end? With yeah, I think I'd been, I'd been away for five years. Yes. I started to feel that I was at a, a fork in the road where I could have stayed in London and kind of continued down a path of being more permanently entrenched in Foster and Partners or come back home and Australia had won the Olympics mm -hmm. and I just thought that would be fun to work on the Olympics. And I had a few friends that had moved from Foster and Partners to Sydney Yes, and they kept saying, why don't you come here and live here and do this? And so I came back in 96 Yep, and I... Um, just I got a job with Hassel working mm -hmm. on, the, on the railway station in the big park. Yes. And I completely loved it. It was great. I worked on that for two years. Wow. And uh, it was with one of the directors of Foster's who was leading the project. It was just such a dream project to be involved with. So we were out on Olympic Park when there were no roads. It was just sort of a paddock of an industrial site, yeah. really. And they were saying, this is where there's going to be a road. This is where there's going to be a train station. And people were holding up the rolled up thermal fax paper, <laughs> walking around with that as their plans at the time. I always think back to those times and they feel like just yesterday. I remember being at really? the opening ceremony of the Olympics and it was just, I think in Amazing. Sydney yeah. it was such a euphoric atmosphere. And yeah. I don't know whether we've ever seen it since, to be honest. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it was kind of amazing, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, and they did it all so well, I think. They, you know, it was a very early project where there was extreme commitment to sustainability. Mm. So I know on the, the railway station they banned the use of PVCs and were very, very careful about all the materials that were chosen for yes. the project. Yeah. I remember the buses, all the transport was really, you know, the trains, everything was running on time and yeah. seamless. But what I didn't realise until years and years later when I had a friend that told me all the secrets, but I think the Premier at the time had rung up Lindsay Fox and got all of his top drivers to actually drive the Sydney buses. Really? That, because he, he just didn't want anything to go to wrong. Go right. And it was sort of this, you know, you would never see that again, mate. Yeah. yeah so. Someone told me that they, for the, the delegates, they could control the traffic lights. Yes, yeah. And apparently you can sort of set them so when you're on approach, they'll go green and you go straight through. I think that's That would be the remote control to get, isn't it? Yeah, right. Wouldn't I, would, I wouldn't mind one of them. <laughs> well, isn't that what they did when Princess Diana came out and then she ended up being early because they'd gave, given her all, changed all the lights and really? then she was at some function and right. then she arrived turned up early. arrived early. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you, and then what led to... To your own practice. Mm. 
So it's back in sort of 97, mm. 98, I was just starting to feel like I wanted to do my own thing. And I hadn't really planned that, but it just, I guess it was, you know, I was kind of curious about it. And what drove that decision was just this feeling, and it's hard to describe, but I felt like I had something to say mm-hmm. and I didn't know what it was. And I thought, I've got to, the only way to do it is to do my own thing okay. because otherwise I was always trying to channel what someone else wanted and deliver on that. So in Fostering Partners, you were very directed on how the design would be and if you came up with something that wasn't aligned to the practice's vision, mm. no matter how good it was, then it wasn't going ahead. Yes. Because it's, you know, and that's there's great credit in that. And even on the Olympic Park Railway Station, it was someone else's design that I was doing my best to make better and to deliver on detail. Yeah. So I had this feeling that I wanted, I had something to say. I didn't know what it was. So I was sort of just in the background thinking, well, if that's the way, then something will fall into place at some point and I might as well just start setting things up. And a friend of mine in Perth asked me to design a house for him. So I just did that quietly on my weekends. So Saturdays I would work on his house. And then about a week apart, two small projects came my way and a friend of mine asked me to do an apartment renovation for him. Mm -hmm. And another friend of a friend said, could you help with a terrace renovation? And both those projects were completely under budgeted, but also completely out of alignment with everything I'd been doing. I'd been working on railway stations, mm. high-rise towers, conference centres, except for the bit of work in Frontiers, which was much more traditional. But I just thought I have enough savings to last for a few months. I've got my computer. I've been doing, you know, I think I could do all this. I could get a fax machine yeah. and just keep going at it. And then that was just how it all began. I found I was super enthusiastic, so working long hours mm. but not feeling any of that. No. It was just coming from in flow. Yeah, yeah, the the excitement of what was going to happen. And the first of the two projects was picked up by the domain years mm-hmm. ago. So the domain used to have a centerfold project. And that if you got that, then it just got massive readership in the City yes. Morning Herald. And then as soon as that was published, then a couple of other people came along and, and just gradually it grew. So it's been over 20 years from yeah. now. And I started on my own and then Within a few months, I asked one of my friends to come and join me. And then six or nine months after that, we got someone else. And, you know, just every year it seemed to grow by a couple of people. We're now about 45 people. Mm. Yeah. It's a beautiful space. So I will get to brick in a little bit. but mm. uh, And there's been so much brick in what you've done. But mm. is there one project sort of looking back in those maybe that first decade that was more of a game changer for you or that, I mean, I know you've spoken about this particular house, but... Yeah, um. I think that's a few. And mm. so we, we do work on different scales of projects. Mm. And um, one of them that changed a lot is we did a house called Tusculum that would have been finished 10 years ago. Mm. And that was probably the first time when there was enough budget to do some really strong moves. And, and we wanted to do a staircase in the middle and that would radiate from one central column and it connected five levels of a house. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of a big game changer for us. And after that, people sort of trusted me to to be more of an architect. Mm -hmm. And then also our own offices in Burke Street. And what was really happening up until that point is we were developing a strong reputation for interior design. So we were working within other people's houses. Mm -hmm. And um, a couple of those projects just moved the dial towards architecture again. Mm -hmm. So there were opportunities where we could 
change the outside of the building and do strong expression. Mm. And so that was they were they were all game changers for us. And we also did a project called APRA, uh, which is for the Australasian Performing Rights Association. Yes. And it was a very sustainable project and one a whole lot of sustainability ideas. And that was a great project for us because we were able to infuse some of the kind of look with strong technical capability behind it, which is what I, what I kind of love. Like for it to look beautiful is great, but I think for it to be a great project, it has to be backed up by strong technical support, you know, so it does it function well, is it environmentally sustainable, is it kind of durable and mm. enduring as well? I mean, you can see it in this detail here, but it's that ability to make something look very, very simple, but mm. there's so much work behind it that That's right. really shines through That's right. in what yeah. you do. That is a big thing, actually. Mm. So often when we build projects, we try to set up a scenario where the construction team can excel, but a part of the conversation is saying this is actually quite complex mm. in order for it to be simple because you have to make sure the footing is in exactly the right spot to deliver the wall in the right spot so that when you plait it with that sheet of render or plasterboard and then you tile it and then you grout it and then you align it with the mirror at the end of the job, everything lines up perfectly. Mm. And so it means we've got to be very disciplined about each of the steps that lead to the final solution. Mm. I've got many favourite projects of yours, but mm. I wondered whether you could just talk about the impact of Indigo Slam, which also could be my dream house. Yeah, yeah. But I just wondered as an architect, and what sort of was it like having that brief? Yeah, so that... Without doubt, that's probably the biggest game changer for us, but not in the first 10 years of, no. of practice. It was it was amazing, actually. So early with Tusculum, it was kind of a project where someone had enough budget to do something bold and strong. Mm. That was really great. Indigo Slam was definitely the first time someone said to me, build me something amazing, please. Like, I'm not, like Judith hand wrote out the brief and it was a one-page, beautifully written, letter almost that said I wanted to do all these things and be very manual and last for 100 years and all these kind of great aspects to the project. But she also said, make it incredible, like let's yeah. do something great here. And that was the first time that anybody did that. They didn't say, I like it to look a bit like this and I want it to be like this. It was just none of that. Wow. And so the, so the, the opportunity was vast. Mm -hmm. And I started the project with her by showing her three different projects and each of them had a different kind of aspect. So one of them was very minimal mm -hmm. and beautiful. They were all beautiful, very minimal. The second one was kind of more classic and the third one was kind of crazy. Were these projects that you'd completed? Or no, they just, just other projects around the world. So the okay. last one was actually yeah. an art gallery in, in uh, South America right. and showed her that and said, what do you think? And, and she just sort of liked that one, the art gallery. And the project needs to be called Indigo Slam. And that was a novel that she picked up in the airport and just thought it was a great name. Yeah. But that, that was kind of a clue for me. I thought that the, the wild project plus that name, mm. that, that means don't build something classic and kind of quiet in the corner. This, is, this has got to be strong. In saying that, you know, it is so strong, but there's a lot of classic elements to that. Yeah, particularly mm. the interiors. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so I feel like as an architect, a part of the job is to to surprise your clients and show them something they haven't thought of. Mm. And a part of the job is to find like a coat, yes. find that, that fit for them mm. that is just right. So I sort of read Judith as someone that was kind of very delicate in some ways and very strong in others. 
So I just with the interiors of the house, I wanted her to feel at home and I wanted to kind of channel that beauty and that delicacy that she has and bring that into the interior. So I didn't want it to be a feminine interior as such. I wanted it to be delicate in its kind of construction. And then bringing that together with bold form was the challenge to do. So how we brought natural light in was critical. The tonal contrast between materials was critical. Getting the materials exactly right was critical. And then the right amount of detail. So it's very detailed. Yes. But a lot I mean, of the detail is also making things disappear. Yes. Like lights. Or I mean, I just, I remember, I think that was one of the entries, but for the flooring, so it yeah. was all beautiful yeah. and paved and it broke my heart because it wasn't, it was all beautiful, but not It wasn't enough. so bricky, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just wondered in that scenario, and were you presenting the materials or was, I mean, was that part of it that you kind of had that? real allowance to, to present whatever you yeah, wanted totally, to. Totally. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think Judith said quite early on, I'd like to do brick floors, and I just thought that's perfect. Yeah. And so we we had built White Rabbit together mm. and so started to have a, a good working relationship and friendship. And so sometimes I'd turn up and say, I remember one time I just went to Rome and was going up and down a building. We rented a little apartment there and it had marble stairs that were worn out you know sort of sagging in the middle yes through use and i came back and said i think we should do the staircase in marble judith and she just said no it's got to be brick oh wow and then she when she says that you think i could probably come back one more time and ask you again but that was pretty definite (laughs) i'm going to pick my battles (laughs) that's right that's right and so we just sort sort of had a rapport where i would come and say to her this is what i've been thinking about would you like to develop that And she would say yes or no and how long was that construction? Three years to Three build. Three years. Yeah. And we finished the design while we were building because mm. Judith wanted to get on with it. And we spent about a year and a bit getting towards construction. So it was about a year to design the, the building and get the plans approved. And then about half a year after that till we started building. Wow. Yeah. That's a good project. I loved it. Yeah. I would work on it every Saturday. I would spend nearly the whole day working on Indigo Slam just quietly on my own and I come to work and say to the guys, here's what we're going to do this week and go through it all and they would develop, make it better, ask questions. We do all that during the week. But the quiet time in between working was important as well. You don't have to answer this, but I'm just curious because, you know, she designed it for the horse to come through. Has a horse been through it? No horses have been through no, it was. Um, you may not know this, but she wanted the. It was the front entrance, wasn't it? Yeah. So the the, the story is that the and it's right. I showed okay. her the, the drawings for the stair and said, I think we should make the stair like this. And her friend Angela Angela Belgiorno, oh um, yes, had said at the time, you you should proportion it for a horse. And that's if you proportion it for a horse to ride up. So this is built on. Uh, classical proportioning systems, then it will be very pleasant for a human. And we actually took that quite seriously and we found someone who was a, a stunt trainer for horses so they could train them to do stunts. And they had trained horses to run up and down staircases for, for stunts. And so they knew how to do that. So we proportioned it for that. And what it is when you go through it is this, the treads are long and deep and they're very gentle to go up. So it could take a horse's, you know, kind of steps well. Wow. Yeah. And the I'm closest really it's come I is. I'm glad I asked that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no horses have been. No horses. No. Yeah. I think 
Bonicella was going to do a dance piece around a horse that would go up and down the stairs that was as close as it came. Game. But it's funny on Chinese whispers, isn't it? I heard one day I was standing at the front of the house. With, yeah. That was printed. Was it? Yeah. yeah. And someone, I remember standing at the front of the house one day and I heard this person say, yes, there's a Chinese lady who lives in the house and she rides a horse up and down the stairs. <laughs> so things kind of get changed over time, don't they? I think that the Chinese part of it was just her fascinated with Chinese art. One element of that house, and, and then I'll move away from it, but it, the actual brick also goes outside as well and yeah. certainly around the pool. Yeah. And and that is very it's extraordinary in, mm. in these times. Was that another one of your ideas, or was that sort of one of her? No, I think we we just like you can you can use brick on the inside, the yeah. outside, anywhere. Uh, it's in we use it up into the bathrooms. We just say generally, including the kitchen areas as well. Mm. Yeah, inside we waxed it, mm-hmm. oh, so okay. we put two layers of wax over the surface. One has a bit of white in the wax. And the other one's just a plain wax on it. And it's kind of, it just stops that dusting that you yes. get from bricks. I think what's beautiful about it now is there's a big dining hall downstairs where they have parties and it just has aged beautifully. Like yes. if wine gets dropped on it, it doesn't matter. It just sort of actually seems to get better with age. Yeah. Mm. I am going to ask you a little bit about wine brick mm. um, because there's so many. In fact, you're featured in our awards, so you've dominated them. Right. Most years we get actually criticised because... You're that good. You've ended up with two finalists, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yet we judge everything blind. Yeah, but but why brick for you? I actually think there's many different aspects. So one of our projects in Sussex Street for the Crown Plaza Hotel, that project was all about being a good neighbour and relating to the context of the area. So historically, that part of Sydney had grown out of old wet old brick warehouses, and then after that, there'd been a series of of brick buildings, most of which weren't that good actually, that were built in that corner. And we felt as though if we were to build a new building out of brick there, we would just reinforce the character of the area and elevate all of our neighbours, mm-hmm. which I think was quite successful. Mm-hmm. On that project also there was, you know, at times there's different experts that come along and tell you to use another material. By the time we'd gone through all that, just laying regular bricks on lintels was the right thing to do for the building. So there was a bit of pressure at one point to change to precast and then consider brick snaps and all sorts of other things. Mm. But it ended up just being regular brick was kind of easy to build. There's a lot of people who know how to do it. And the texture and the the realness of it, I think, is part of its charm. And then another project we did um, for Sydney Trains. Yeah. Yeah, it was a very strong They've project. They've come back. You haven't, you haven't been able to get away from the railway stations. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah they came back. And um, that project was unusual because they had a brief to make the top half of the building solid, mm-hmm. the bottom half of the building a little bit more open, but mostly it's uh, railway infrastructure, so substations and transformers mm-hmm. and car parks and things. And then we developed this idea of building it as a piece of railway infrastructure in the city. And our idea was that you can read a building generally, or a good building, and you can look at it and say, people live in that one, it looks like an apartment building maybe because it's got balconies or window mm. furnishings or the things that tell those signs of life. And another office building, you can generally read through, again, the window furnishings and how the design of the exterior is. With this building, we felt like its role in the city is a piece of rolling infrastructure. We should express that. Mm. And so the expression became the big arch. Uh, we used it to be genuinely load-bearing, so it took the weight from the brick above. 
and distribute it because the arch is one way of distributing a load. It's like a beam mm-hmm. that works in three dimensions. And, uh, and then we felt that had resonance to the history of Sydney trains, railway tunnels, railway bridges, train stations, little small platforms. There's a lot of brick in Sydney trains mm. and so that the resonance became there. So, so sometimes it's that. And on a different level entirely, it's just, it's like a pixel, I think. It's a small element that you can arrange in so many ways. So you can see that with our apartment, there's structural brick vaults in the space that are shaped in a catenary load-bearing form. Other projects, we're using them as screens at the moment and really exploring new ways of doing that. Another project in the rocks, we're looking to lay them in very unusual ways so you get diagonal stripes on the outside. And like it's just, it feels to me like it's like this pixel that you can just expand over large form. And because it's so small in its unit, you can bend it, you can shape it, you can do a lot of things with it. Mm. I mean, it's sort of easy to lay vertically mm. and to, to make square openings within that, but that's, that's not really what I'm interested in doing. I think, though, one of the things I've learned over time now and being among so many creative people is that constraint is a good thing mm. because it really makes you think differently mm. as to how. And, and, I mean, every year we see with the awards all of these different uses of brick that we never thought yeah. would ever happen. Yeah. And I guess just in the building that we're in, you, you, you've done a lot of prototypes and testing and maybe just could you talk us through a little bit about what you've discovered? So in this building, for example, we did a full-size prototype of one of the vaults Mm -hmm. and the things we were really asking ourselves in the process was firstly would it hold together in a very strong and stable way and particularly because I didn't want to have any mortar joints in the space I just wanted the bricks touching the bricks and we had some advice on how that would be second part of it is just how could we build it could you know I sort of worked out how to build it so we built some timber false work we laid the bricks over we put some reinforcing on and sprayed it with a very thin layer of concrete would all that work could people do it could they you know and then the third part of it was just to learn what i didn't know so sometimes you don't know what you don't know yep and i use that you're the only other person i've heard say that really i use that so we don't know what we don't know yes and so that part of that process was to do that and then we you know we wanted to write up a paper about the project and so we cut out parts of the prototype took them to a lab crushed it tested it and it was sort of exceeded everything in terms of its structural stability, way, way, way beyond what we ever thought it would. So that was kind of a great learning for us. And I mean, I could very confidently say it's here for the next 100 years and we don't have to worry too much about anything that's there. Mm. And, you've, I mean, this building is designed, obviously, to have minimal impact and sustainability. And maybe you could just tell our audience a little bit about some aspects of that. Yeah, so the sustainability runs over many levels. So... One of them is we just don't have air conditioning in our studio. You're in a space now with the ceiling fans and it's quite warm. I mean, it's quite comfortable. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. At the moment. So that kind of works very well. We have all the windows that open and close automatically. So it's just, it's got a little uh, weather station on the roof that's reading the temperature now. It's also connected to internet. So it's looking at the temperatures tomorrow and it's kind of working on trying to just keep it all comfortable for everybody. And it opened, so it started raining, all the windows were closed. Today it's saying it's hotter outside than inside, so we're going to keep the windows closed till about 5 o'clock and then we're going to open it up. Um, We have 260 solar panels in our roof, so that makes enough energy to power our studio 
and some spaces next door, including a factory out the back that has big welders and our apartment upstairs. We also have uh, underfloor heating and cooling. Mm. So what happens in summer is the, the floor cools down. Today it's not warm enough to be working. Mm. So this is just the air and being well insulated and how that works. We collect rainwater and use that for flushing the loos mm -hmm. and irrigation at the front of the building. And we've planted many trees in the neighbourhood and are trying to green this area up. I don't think there's anywhere near enough trees in our cities. No. And I guess on that next point, where do you see the role of architects in, in what we have to deal with from a, a climate perspective and, mm. and development? How, what's your view of what the role of architects is? Yeah, I and mean, it's sort of the, the construction industry is just one of the largest emitters of carbon, really. So that's probably the next thing to be targeting. And we're trying seriously to look at construction and how much carbon gets consumed or produced during during construction. Mm. So we're looking at that pretty hard as a business at the moment. We're also, we feel as though our role is to try and educate our clients about sustainability and the benefits of that. And through the experiences we've had of building naturally ventilated offices or offices without air conditioning, we're able to bring a little bit of knowledge to those projects and say, we can do it like this. Yes. I'm pretty excited about I would love to say no more air conditioning in our houses. Yeah. That isn't a reality at the moment, but we are getting more and more clients saying, I don't want any air conditioning in my house, including some very large houses. And then our job is to make that comfortable for them. So mm. if you're going to do that, then you've got to be very careful about shading the glass, minimising the amount of glass, making it bright, making it comfortable, making it very livable as well. I think it's really interesting. It maybe was 2018, uh, I went to the Institute of Architects in America, their mm. conference there, mm. and it was this a really big sort of almost a, a flip back because I think everyone had been so worried about timber and certain products, but then everyone had put in windows, which also meant that the building didn't operate efficiently either, and, and there seems to be a natural co correction going on about not yeah. only what materials you're using, but then how do they perform. Yeah, so a yeah. big, big part of our apartment upstairs, you probably didn't you might have noticed it but there's not a lot of windows in the space mm. it's probably 90 percent wall and about 10 percent windows and then the reason why we do that is the window is probably the weakest link in terms of insulating the interiors mm. so it's like a thin material that will allow the heat out in winter and the heating in summer mm. so if you can minimize the amount of of that material that thin leaky uh, material, then you will reduce the amount of heat gain and heat loss. Yes. So that's a, a principle of starting the design. But, you know, we love views out and we love warm spaces So and we love natural light. So you've got to bring all that into balance as well. Well, William, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Pleasure. We're going to end with the rapid quick fire round questions. Yep. Awesome. So reading the news, a newspaper or online? Newspaper. Handwriting or typing? Typing. For sketching ideas and concepts, would you use a pencil, pen or an e-pen? Pen. Do you like to read books or listen to audiobooks? Audiobooks. What's important to you, style or substance? Substance. Coffee or tea? Coffee. TV shows or movies? Movies. Antique or brand new? Brand new. Call or text? Text. Travel back in time or to the future? Future. Exterior or interior? Interior, just. You can say both. Both, yeah. <laughs> Video games or board games? 
board games. Form or function? Well, I think both, actually. I think you have to have both. And we've, you've answered this earlier, but complex or simple with relation to design? Yeah, I actually think that's a brilliant and it's complexity to achieve simplicity is probably where what I think is what we do. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.